You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NEJM Audio Perspectives, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine. Your moderator for this discussion is Dr. Thomas Lee, Network President at Partners Healthcare System in Boston and an Associate Editor of the Journal. In a time of incredible transition in healthcare, we're all hoping that where we're headed is a delivery system that delivers higher quality care more efficiently. Our accountable care organizations, or ACOs, the vehicle, what everyone says is the devil's in the details. To talk about that today, we've got three experts with complementary perspectives. We have Gail Walensky, an economist and a senior fellow at Project Hope, who served in a variety of roles with relevance to this topic, including administrator of the Healthcare Financing Administration and chair of MedPAC. We have Elliot Fisher, who's the director of the Center for Health Policy Research and a professor of medicine at Dartmouth Medical School. And we have Larry Castellino, who's the chief of the Division of Outcomes and Effectiveness Research and a professor at Weill Cornell Medical College. Elliot, why don't we start with you? Because you are the person, for better and worse, who's credited with coining the phrase accountable care organizations. What are they? And what is happening right now to actually bring the concept to life? The idea of accountable care organizations are sort of three key attributes, organized care, performance measurement, and payment reform, all aligned, if possible, to support physicians in their efforts to improve care. So the notion of organized care, let's encourage physicians and hospitals to come together to become more organized entities that are capable of managing and being responsible for the care of an entire population of patients. Second thing is performance measurement. Let's make sure that they report regularly on performance measures that will reassure the public and payers that the quality of care is actually improving. Because if you're going to change the payment incentives, you don't want to reward the stinting on care that we saw in the 1990s. So performance measurement is the second attribute. And then the third key element is getting the payment system aligned with what we want to see, better care and lower costs. So there the notion is continue under fee-for-service payment, at least initially, but then offer substantial bonuses if to the provider organizations, to the ACOs, that are able to improve quality and then a share of the savings if they're able to reduce costs below where they were projected to be. Well, there have already been a number of pilots that were run you know, by Medicare over the last five years, the physician group practice demonstration, which was fundamentally this model with a slightly different benchmarking approach. Um, the Brookings-Dartmouth collaborative that Mark McClellan and I are running, we have five pilots around the country um, that are already embarking on forming these you know, payment arrangements with their private payers. And, and most of the private payers are involved in trying to work on this as well. And so where are they in the process? Well, one of them, Norton Healthcare and Humana, have signed an ACO contract uh, uh, you know, for their under-65 population. The physicians at Norton are working hard um, with the hospital to pull themselves together, reorganize care, figure out how to work with Humana to get really useful, timely data that helps them understand you know, how their patients are doing and how to improve their care. Um, so there, it's actually quite, a, quite an elegant partnership between the payer and the provider. Instead of dickering over prices, they're trying to work together to say, how can we jointly improve care? Now, Gail, you have looked at the healthcare system from a variety of angles, and I know you're following this very carefully. Um, how skeptical are you of this? Is this the magic bullet? Uh, will, this fi- will this solve our problem? I'm a little uh, concerned or dubious, and the reason is... Uh, precisely because of what I saw 
happening with the physician group practice uh, demo that Elliot just mentioned. These were 10 setup cases in the sense that if anybody should be able to produce savings with quality, it ought to have been the 10 groups that came into this demo. And what to me was uh, the most impressive is that while all of them were able to meet the quality goals, in the initial year, only two of them were able to produce savings at a level that would allow them to share some savings. And even after three years, only five of them have been able to do that. I say that's important because these, if th these groups couldn't pull it off, it's hard to see how likely it is for small groups of physicians who are going to be loosely affiliated to be able to organize themselves enough to do this. But maybe, and I, that in no way should be interpreted to say, I don't want to see this go forward. We've got to get away from where we are, which is a reimbursement system that rewards for more and more complex, that's fragmented, that's stove-typed. And right now, most physicians are in small, single-specialty practices. So we'll see whether this accountable care organization is enough to induce physicians to change their behavior, uh, to reward the kind of behavior we'd like to see in terms of producing accountable care. My biggest concern right now, my single biggest concern, is the only entities that will step up to the plate are hospitals. Understandable hospitals are going to be entities receiving the payment. Some of the time, they're more organized or better able to do this. My concern is that over the last decade, we've seen a large shift in power toward the hospitals as they've merged and consolidated. And if they are the only entities receiving the payment, uh, it will have a bad imbalance between groups of physicians uh, and the hospitals. So when I've been out speaking uh, around the country, I am pleading with physician groups to be willing to be the entity receiving money um, with or without a, uh, without a hospital. Uh, pair up with a payer uh, if you want, but don't only be the recipient in a hospital-led uh, ACO or you will rue the day. Well, I think Larry's probably the right guy to comment on uh, how high a hurdle that is. You know, Larry, besides you know, doing a lot of great health services research on the kind of systems that improve care, you, uh, we asked you to come in part because you did spend a couple decades actually leading a primary care practice in California. So you really do have a boots on the ground perspective on what this challenge entails. So can we make these changes? I think that uh First of all, I don't think that accountable care organizations will succeed if they don't make life better for, for, for patients and also for physicians. They just, they just won't. Uh, there's, uh, I don't think you can have a major delivery system reform in this country with physicians actively opposed to it, and I, I think we found that out in the 90s. I think that in, in terms of the barriers, I think you know performance. I see as a function of, uh, of incentives plus capabilities. So if ACOs are going to become prevalent and and do what we'd like them to do, uh, the right incentives have to be in place, and the provider organizations have to have the capabilities to change the way care is provided. And I think that it's going to be very difficult to get both correct. I, th I think it can be done. I think it. I hope it will be done. Uh, but I think it will be difficult. I wouldn't bet a lot on it, and I don't think it will be be quick. But I do share 
Gail's concern about um, uh, potential hospital domination. I think that uh, I think one of the most significant and least uh, publicly noted things that's happened in the healthcare system in the last nine years or so is very rapid increase in hospital employment of physicians, not just primary care physicians, but specialists, and not just physicians at the end of their career or the beginning of their career, but physicians at all stages of their career. It's changing the demographics of physician practice very quickly. I mean, hospitals have capital. They have uh, skilled uh, managers whose job is to make things happen. They're not practicing medicine, and so they have a lot of advantages in... um, trying to form ACOs, and ideally the capital could be used to make functional ACOs. But uh, I think we all know that there are there have been problems in the past, and I could easily talk about problems I would anticipate in the future if we have a system in which really ho- we have almost only hospital-dominated uh, uh, ACOs, and, and most physicians are, are em- employed by hospitals. Yep. I'm actually less worried about who's running them than I am about what business model they're operating under. If the business model is generating revenue, I'm not sure it's, it's aligned with what we want to achieve. I'm, I believe that the strength, the success of this model will depend not on which business model it is. I hope physician groups succeed. I hope hospitals succeed. It will be on whether we have performance measures that make sure they're paying attention to what patients really want. And that will require making physicians' lives happier. If you look at the places where it's starting to work, the, little, the initial anecdotes, and certainly here in Massachusetts, where the alternative quality contract strongly emphasizes primary care performance in terms of the kinds of measures they're being held accountable for, you start to see investments in primary care practice. You know, Larry, like for, you know, clinicians, not just physicians, but other clinicians as well, you know, who are actually delivering that care, what should it feel like? So I think in a, in a, in a high-functioning ACO, um, there'd be a, a couple of a, a major advantages for, for physicians. First of all, you wouldn't be making money by churning volume as fast as you could. You could get off that assembly line. Secondly, you would feel because of the um, organized processes to improve the care of a population of patients that the ACO is responsible for, you wouldn't go home every night feeling that you know that there's a lot you hadn't done for your patients that you could have done. Third, instead of trying to do all those things yourself, in a well-organized ACO, physicians would actually be able to spend their day doing things that really would, would be high value for patients with a lot of help from the rest of the staff and uh, use of various kinds of organized processes to improve quality for the population of patients of the ACO, not just the people who happen to come into the office, but everybody, and not just during face-to-face visits, but in between uh, visits as well. I think there are many uh, potential advantages for uh, physicians in that. It will require, I think, a a major uh, cultural shift in the way physicians think about what's a good physician and what's quality. So quality isn't just what I do for an individual patient while they're in front of me. Quality is what my organization does for our population of patients all the time. In the short term, how are we going to staff these accountable care organizations How are we going to manage when we have a world where most physicians, the vast majority of physicians, are specialists, and the primary care pool is relatively small? I'm worried about both sides. We can find ways to support primary care physicians through nurse practitioners, through PAs, through other ways that could help a little. I'm as much concerned as an economist about what 
are all these specialists going to be doing, uh, not quietly fading into the sunset for sure. And how do we get ourselves through the period of trying to right balance who is out there? I mean, we have all kinds of incentives in terms of uh, loan forgiveness, uh, targeting, changing reimbursement to try to uh, shift the, uh, the mix. Uh, but, you know, that is not a short-term solution. Let me add on a nuance to that, which I know is probably in the minds of many of the viewers, which is what happens with academic medical centers in this environment where there's a lot of great special expertise, which I think the marketplace wants. Most specialists are still working in the same fee-for-service environment that requires them to spend all of their time, you know, or at least a conscious amount of their time generating revenue. And if you look at some of integrated delivery systems, much of specialist time, whether it's at Kaiser or Group Health, is starts to be devoted to thinking about quality improvement and thinking about the health of the population they're serving. If we're starting to reorient the organizations toward improving the health of the population and improving care, specialist knowledge is absolutely critical. Um, but it may con- specialists may contribute both through their practice and through their contribution to improving the systems of care. In terms of academic medical centers, I think there is a real challenge here. And I think it's a, there's some positive sides, that is academic medicine should be leading the development of new models of care that can successfully meet the challenges we face. It's not been their traditional, most academic medical centers' traditional focus of activity, the development of new models of care, but it certainly could be. And I think we will have to think carefully about how do we continue to support the, the real advances in science um, that, are, that we need to get from our academic medical centers. A lot of the costs of innovation at academic medical centers are sort of built into the hidden in the price structures of the way we pay for healthcare now. If we move to purely value-based payment, where uh, an academic medical center has to sort of compete with the community hospital next door, um, it would be very hard for the academic medical centers to continue as innovators. So I think one of the policy challenges we all face is to figure out how to make sure that academic cent- that the cost of academic medicine are somehow kept separate. One of the attractions of ACOs to me is that rather than have the government set workforce policy and say, well, we will have X percent primary care physicians, in effect, if, if accountable care organizations became prevalent, accountable care organizations would, would be determining, as Scale said, what's the mix of specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants that we want. And then that would drive really, uh, uh, to some extent, would drive physician incomes uh, and all, uh, relative to each other. Uh, and also drive the number of people that would be trained in primary care. But in the short term, there could be some dislocations. Just one other comment about that. I, I would say that I actually think that I actually think that probably a good 50 or 60 percent, if not more, of visits to primary care physicians, face-to-face visits, don't need to be face-to-face. I think in terms of specialists, um, I, I think there will be grenade lobbying. Uh, and so I, I'd be interested in, in, in hearing what, what you two well, think. Well, well let's, ahead, pre- let's pretend yeah. for a moment that we are a highly paid consulting group, and, we're gonna, and we're, we've got two engagements, one with an academic medical center and one with Larry's old practice, small practice. You know, what advice would we give them? So advice to any provider, you know, hospital, academic medical center, or primary care practice, I think the days of unrestricted fee-for-service medicine where you can raise your prices you know, as much as you want are gone. You know, it may take a little while for them to really go away. In the new world, that we'll have, there will be some relationship between value and payment. 
Even now, you can begin to prepare by reducing unit costs. You win under fee-for-service if you're thoughtful about how to take costs out of your current processes, and you win, certainly win under, mm -hmm. under more global payment models, whether they're episode-based payment um, or, or, cap or, or full capitation, as some integrated systems are, are already receiving. So I think you know, that's certainly you know, being prepared for a shift to value-based payment, to learn the skills of how do you manage costs within a system rather than ignore them. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think then about the next level, which is population management, which you know, Larry was talking about, where you're actually able, if you're a primary care practice, to think about how can we manage the care of a population of primary care patients with diabetes or heart failure. And mm -hmm. there are payment models out there now, the, you know, the patient-centered medical home model, which is really pretty closely aligned with the ACO, and, mm -hmm. and many are seeing them as, as partners. Um, with an ACO f leading to a strengthening of, patient, of the patient-centered medical home, you know, they're all about you know, trying to apply just the processes that Larry was mm -hmm. describing, of effective care management processes, and you can win under a, a PCMH model, you mm -hmm. know, primary care patient-centered medical home model in the short term. And actually kind of the holy grail at the end of all this would, would be uh, where an ACO is large enough and competent enough so payers would basically say, here's the money, you take care of patients, you do it the best way that you know how. There's no utilization management, there's no prior authorization, there's no denying of fee-for-service claims. You just do it the best you can and we'll be measuring quality and, and, and patient experience to make sure you're not stinting on care. You've been listening to NEJM Audio Perspectives, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air.